0: Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done.
1: Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams-Hurd the host of InTrust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow.
3: Caroline Hyde at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York.
0: And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology.
3: Coming up, we sit down with the CEO of Lyft to run through the company's results, break down that all-important clerical error that led to, at one point, a 67% surge in its shares.
0: Plus, will be joined by OpenAI Chair and former Salesforce CEO, Brett Taylor, as he raises $110 million to bring AI agents to business and
3: fighting talk from Mark Zuckerberg as he personally reviews Apple's Vision Pro. What are his takeaways? Not good. We'll discuss that and so much more throughout this hour, but first, let's check in on these markets. Uber giving money back to the investor base. Remember, they had a really strong quarter. They posted it last week and then today, after an investor meeting, they're giving us a share buyback. We're driving that stock up almost 12% on the back of that as they managed to be bringing profitability and therefore capital back to the investor base. Let's have a look at what's happening, though, with the rival. Lyft. I mean, what an extraordinary day we had yesterday. Earnings posted, but an extra zero crept into the margin forecast. 500 bips, that was clerical error, they called it. We rose up to 67% in after-hours trading. We then sunk back down. Now, we are still trading higher on Lyft, but that 500 margin becomes a 50-bit margin overall. We've got to dig into the growth of this business and actually how they're giving back to the consumer, a key conversation that we're about to have now
0: welcome to our tv and radio audiences worldwide joining us now on the company's fourth quarter earnings is lyft ceo david risher and david a clerical error
2: yeah what happened well look first of all it's on me there are a lot of eyes on this press release but at the end of the day uh my bad but look i don't want it to take anything away from the butt-kicking performance that the business did, um, thanks to all of our employees and thanks to millions of drivers. I mean, look, we had our our financially strongest quarter we have ever had, uh, and I'm super excited about it. To be clear, uh,
0: this was simply a mistake, human error. Human error. stock rose as much as 67% in After Hours. As Caroline pointed out, it's significantly higher this morning. And we can talk about the performance in the quarter gone and the performance in the current period. This may sound bizarre to you, but I think it's a real question. Mm. Did you guys use AI to write that press release? (laughs) Seriously? Or is this as simple as as you are
2: calling it a clerical error? No, it was a clerical error. Yeah, no, we're not at the point where press releases can be written by AI. At least not financial press releases, no way.
3: I hate to ask it because real people's jobs are now on the line, I'm sure, David. And I wanna ask, is the CFO's role safe? Is this gonna have repercussions from across your membership and and employee base?
2: The CFO's role is 100% safe. 100% safe. Look, she and the team are taking this incredibly seriously. And you have to understand, I mean, we go through hours and hours of checking and double checking before something like this goes. It's an unacceptable error. Again, ultimately, it's on me. I'm the CEO. Buck stops with me. But the team is taking it super seriously.
3: And I know that you want to be talking ultimately about how you're seeing growth in the business. And I'm sure that that's something that, in a way, the salt in the wound is even greater because you had a great story to tell and it got marred by this particular era, but people are going back and saying they have never seen anything like this in history, David. What would you do differently in the next earnings? How can you make sure that investors feel confident in the statements that you put out to them in the foreseeable future?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, I would look at our record and, and look at the growth, look at the fundamentals of the financials. And to be very clear, this was, it was a bad error, but it was 1-0 in a press release and, you know, a lot of other pages. Uh, and of course, we corrected it within seconds of finding it. So I think, you know, like with any mistake, I think it's not so much about the mistake itself. It's also about how you correct for it. And we've corrected for it, obviously, in the moment, putting out new materials, but also doing a really deep uh, process dive, including having our own internal audit team, a separate team look and figure out how we can make sure we never make a mistake like this again. Okay, if
0: you're listening on Bloomberg television and radio worldwide, we're joined by the CEO of Lyft, David Risher. And I go back to the current stock performance. You are still up 32% in the session. Yeah. And there are so many stories within that, but I, I zero in on the gross booking outlook. Mm-hmm. Um, strong. Yeah. What is the story there? For, for, for me, I'm trying to make sense of the gig economy more broadly mm-hmm. on both the demand and supply side. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the consumer, you look at corporate spending, you, you guys are adding to this narrative that things are quite
2: rosy out there. Yeah. And when, when does that stop? How long does it last? Well, look, I don't know when it stops. That's a tricky thing to predict. But here's what I can tell you. We've had now four quarters of growth, increasing growth, and we had our biggest growth year last year of our company's history. And by the way, we're talking about billions of dollars, by the way, billions of dollars that end up going in driver's pockets. So you can see this is a really important part of the economy because it's a really important part of people's lives. When people take the 700 million trips they took last year on Lyft, they're going to see their parents, they're going to a Taylor Swift concert, they're going to work every day, they're coming home from work, they're going to see their doctor. This is an important part of people's lives. And then when drivers are driving, they're earning to save for a house, they're earning to save for tuition, they're earning because maybe they lost a W2 job and they're three weeks away from picking up a new job and they need something to bridge them. So it doesn't surprise me that uh, the gig economy is becoming increasingly a essential part of people's lives and people's economic lives. Your bigger competitor, Uber,
0: succeeded by adding new products to the app, mm. diversifying even within ride hailing. Yeah and it proved that its algorithm is working in matching riders with efficient routes and drivers. Do you feel that you're going to be competitive
2: in those domains? I do. I do. Look, our focus is a huge strength. We are 100% focused on rideshare. You know, just yesterday we launched Women Plus Connect that allows a woman rider to pick a woman driver uh, all across the United States, 270 markets. It's been a huge success over the first six months when we've been uh, kind of trialing it. We launched a new driver standard that allows drivers to get a guarantee that they'll never earn less than 70% of what rider pays them after uh, some fees. So, you know, this is the sort of innovation that we can do because we're focused on ride share. And look, I expect Uber to do pretty well. I think we'll do pretty well, too. I think this is a really strong sector.
3: I'm going to go back to the drivers, David, because what's interesting on this day is there is strike action. There is, Mm. on Valentine's Day, whether you're going to be flying to Miami, whether you're going to be flying to Chicago, there might well be issues trying to get an Uber or, indeed, a Lyft, and also in the U.K. as well. I'm interested as to what's happening when you are offering 70% guarantee. Why still do they want to demand more? even if you say, look, I'm giving you flexibility.
2: Yeah, I mean, first on the strike itself, Carolyn, it's been in the works for weeks, uh, you know, so it predates the announcement of this new 70% guarantee. If you look at what the drivers are asking for, and I think these are reasonable things to bring up, they want more transparency on their pay, we've given it to them. We give them a very, very clear weekly breakdown that says this is how much riders paid you, this is how much we took, this is how much you get. They've asked for a guarantee, right, so that they don't, you know, so that there's a floor to their earnings. We've given them that too. They've asked for better visibility and to you know, if you as a rider raise a complaint about, about a driver, we have a whole process we go through. And drivers, of course, don't want to be off the platform, particularly if they think it was an unfair accusation. And now we cover something like 70% of those in less than 24 hours, and there's a new one-click button that allows drivers to sort of appeal the deactivation. So what we're doing is we're focused on drivers because we're obsessed over customers. That's kind of our thing. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, we think we can address a lot of their issues um, that they're raising.
3: J.P. Morgan, actually, completely in line with some of the words that you use there. The customer obsession is something they point out. The marketplace health is something they see to continuing to improve on supply tailwinds. So really drivers are not your issue at the moment compared to J.P. Morgan. Another analyst over at Muffin, Nathanson, Nathanson, though, saying ultimately you're at the mercy of Uber when it comes to pricing power and take rates. Do you feel that way, that you're at the mercy of Uber in some way?
2: No. I mean, it's a competitive marketplace. So I think, you know, to a certain extent, they're at our mercy like we're at theirs, right? We can't do things that are completely different and expect to have... Uh, you know, kind of the, the reasonable results. But at the same time, you know, for example, let's again look at this driver earnings guarantee. That's a that's a commitment we've made. It's a leadership move we've made. Uh, you know, we'll see whether uh, Uber follows or not, but that's an area where I would say they're going to want to look pretty closely at what we're doing and decide whether they want to follow us. But I think to be honest, I think this is a healthy marketplace. It's got two good uh, players in it, Uber and Lyft, and we're both doing a good job. I like our strategy better because I think we're more focused on riders and drivers and I think that's a real strength. But you know, they're doing a diversification thing. We'll see if that works for them. Uh,
0: for our Bloomberg television and radio audience, we're speaking with Lyft CEO David Risher. And David, as you know, we always go to our audience and ask, what would you want to know from, from David Risher? And yeah. it's the same question every time. Is Lyft an acquisition target? And And many put people put forward hypotheses about the type of business you know maybe an automaker maybe another uh convenience app Mm -hmm. but where's your head at with that uh you called your your earnings performance butt kicking yeah (laughs) Um, but there are still free cash flow questions there are still scale questions with lyft
2: yeah, well, let me, let me talk about those and then, and then get to the core of the question. Look, we were free cash flow positive for the second time in our company's history this quarter, and we've committed to investors we'll be free cash flow positive for the year of 2024. So, you know, and we have $1.7 billion in the bank. So from a cash perspective, we're in pretty good shape. From a demand perspective, we're in good shape highest demand ever. From a supply perspective, we're in good shape. Highest driver's hours since we've had since 2019. So, you know, from a basic core, and then again, you think about it, 700 million rides in a year. I mean, think about a Delta Airlines that might do a couple thousand, maybe three or four thousand takeoff and landings a day, whereas we do, let's say, two million a day. So our scale isn't really an issue for us. We've got pretty good scale. Um, ask the acquisition thing, you know, just like people ask the same question, I always give the same answer. <laughs> you know, it's like, I mean, our phone, you know, it, we'll pick up the phone if someone calls because that's the deal, but it's not. Not our focus our focus is customers
0: all right Lyft CEO David Richer on set here in San Francisco thank you so much for your time for sure thanks I enjoyed it Caroline
3: such a deep conversation So thousands of U.S. ride-hailing workers, they're striking at major U.S. airports today, also in the U.K., in fact. What are they demanding? Better pay, benefits. And in what organizers say is their largest strike yet. However, Uber has actually said, look, it won't have much impact on Valentine's Day operations. Joining us now to dig into the movement of Uber and Lyft and more notably what's happening in the rest of the earnings space, Bloomberg's Natalie Lang is here, Mandeep Singh of Bloomberg Intelligence. Natalie, I start with you. This sort of pressure coming from ultimately the supply side and the worry
4: about regulatory changes, is it something that companies and investors should be worried about still? Mm-hmm. It's definitely an overhang that analysts have been talking about. There's different laws that are coming up this year, such as the Supreme Court decision in California over Prop 22, which would guarantee minimum pay for drivers. And in Minnesota, people are fighting for um, better pay standards. and so It's definitely something that would add costs for the company, uh, but so far, Whenever regulatory changes have been made, we see the company trying to pass that cost either uh, maybe from the driver's side or passing that cost to customers by adding a fee. Like in New York, they added a courier fee after a minimum wage was implemented. So in a way, the business has a way to sort of mitigate these.
0: Mandy, this, uh, this has been a pretty astonishing week in the world of gig economy, in the world of convenience apps, call it what you will. I guess let's go back in and zero on the, the, the Uber uh, investor sweetener. It's an interesting one, but it's built on the back of a, a profitable year. And if you take that in aggregate with what David Risher of Lyft just told us, the demand side of this economy, it's holding up.
5: Yeah, I mean, look, uh, I, I've always felt these companies generate, you know, more value than the profitability that they have shown so far, and uh, in in this case, I think Uber has shown that it it is working towards this vision of, you know, becoming a super app where if you are thinking about transportation. You go to Uber, whether it's ride-sharing, delivery, or even taxis, I mean, we have come a full circle you know, in terms of disrupting taxis to having taxis on Uber's platform. And I, I think uh, scale and operating efficiency is what drives a mode in this business, and uh, I think Uber is clearly demonstrating that.
0: Okay, let's talk about Airbnb. The company gives a forecast on sales for the current quarter that even at the low end, Mandeep is pretty good and then, or sorry, um, uh, Natalie, and then tells investors, actually things aren't gonna be that good, and then tells investors, we're gonna be a different company in the future that does other things with third parties and AI summarize that story for us
4: right uh, a lot of this is what uh, brian chesky has talked about being an inflection point of the company um, the, sort of the post-pandemic travel trends the post-pandemic boom has sort of faded and that's kind of shown up in the financial performance growth isn't as strong as coming out of omicron last year um, and at the same time they've sort of cleaned up um, their apps uh, and services a bit, um, kind of encouraging more hosts uh, to bring down some of their cleaning fees and encouraging more people to host, getting more users on the platform to make it more reliable. So he feels this is they are at an inflection point to be able to expand beyond that um, core hosting service, uh, going back to uh, before the pandemic, more ambitious endeavors.
0: Okay, Bloomberg's Natalie Lung, Mandeep Singh of Bloomberg Intelligence. Great analysis of a big week in the gig economy. Now, coming up here on the program, we're going to get into Akamai's fourth quarter numbers with their CEO, Tom Layton. Caroline, more stocks to watch.
3: Yeah, Instacart under pressure, as we were just looking at a moment ago. Now, this is as it falls on its fourth quarter revenue miss. They're also cutting jobs at the company, restructuring, heading pretty much at a pivotal moment for this particular company. We've seen the share price under pressure, as you can see over intraday, It's almost down some 10%. Mark Kelly over at Stifel, for example, saying it's a mixed fourth quarter results, a miss on the top line, but better gross transaction value and EBITDA. But this is a company that's once again having, having to belt tighten as they cut costs. And that means people. From New York, from San Francisco, this is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly.
1: Easier said. Done. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film,
3: look at Akamai shares at the moment. Under pressure, this is after the company, the infrastructure software company, reported fourth quarter results. And look, it was relatively mixed is what the street is interpreting. Maybe a little bit cooler than expected in adjusted earnings per share, though they did indeed beat some expectations. We're going to walk through the numbers. CEO Tom Layton is with us, I'm pleased to say. And just getting back to the mixed results, weakness in core content delivery network, that part of the business. What drove that weakness? Is there going to be some recovery, Tom?
5: Uh yeah, you know, we're the largest content delivery provider by far and uh very important business for us, but today most of our revenue is now security uh performing very well, growing in the mid teens. And Compute, which is a really exciting uh, area for us, Uh, did very well, reached half a billion dollars last year with strong growth forecasted for this year. Uh, So delivery, important, great business, market leader by far. You know, pricing pressure there. It's a a business we've been in, really created 25 years ago. Uh, So there is some pricing pressure there. Uh, But the exciting, uh, I think, things about Akamai would be the security business and the Compute business which is now approaching about two-thirds of our revenue. So so
0: the compute business is posting pretty solid top-line growth, but what are we talking about there, Tom, the market for compute? Who are the customers you're serving and, and what is it that you offer?
5: yet yeah, the compute marketplace is enormous you know today it's a well north of a hundred billion dollars and growing rapidly uh... and what akamai is doing is bringing compute support for vms for containers for kubernetes to the edge and, and really the edge Uh, You know, our goal is by the end of this year to be supporting uh, compute, full-stack compute, in 100 cities around the world, which nobody else does today. And that will give us uh, better performance, better scalability, and also because we can take uh, advantage of our existing delivery platform, which is in 4,000 locations, better economics so that our customers can get better performing compute for their applications at a lower price point
0: structurally tom when you look about your business where are you growing the most internally we've talked about this idea that companies have had to reduce cost and then reallocate either talent or simply dollars because there are different speeds happening within their business lines that's exactly what's happening with you and i wondered how you've responded to that
5: Yes, so we have shifted a lot of the resources and investment from the delivery uh, side of the house uh, into compute and also security. Uh, and so you see that reflected our numbers with a very strong growth in security and compute, very good profitability, and we've been able to do that investment because we have shifted a lot of resources from the delivery side. Also, we're now big users of our own compute platform for our own applications, and that is saving us a lot of money, uh, which we then plow back into development of new capabilities to drive future growth.
3: It's interesting that some analysts note that the bears are going to fixate on inline fourth quarter revenues, shaping up a surprise, as you've mentioned, with the compute beat, but ultimately the offset in the delivery. And they seem to say there's this is elusiveness of delivery stability. Can you guide us as to when and where we will start to see ultimately stability? You talk about the pricing pressure, but, but what about the traffic load, Tom?
5: Uh, traffic uh, growth is a little bit higher this year than it was last year, but still below historical pre-pandemic norms. And uh, of course, there's you know continued price pressure and. You know, we're being more selective in the deals that we take mm. uh... so we have been you know not taking on some of the you know the contracts and opportunities there where it's less profitable others you know can do that uh... that helps our profitability and helps us move more investment into security and compute and so that's driving a little of what you see with you know the revenue on the delivery side right. declining in the single digits uh... and really you know uh, our focus is on where we're doing security which is a bigger product line growing in the mid teens and compute, which has enormous potential, growing at over 20%. Uh, So you'll see us continue to do that. And I I think the focus really shouldn't be on delivery. And in fact, as a result of the continued shift into security and compute for our revenue, you know, this year our guidance is there'll be accelerated overall top-line growth for Akamai and continued strong bottom-line growth.
3: We'll see when the share price starts to factor that in a little bit more on the day, but for now we thank you so much Tom Leighton as always for joining us, the CEO of Arkamai. Let's check in on these markets, look at Airbnb Ed. They have seen a run-up in their stock. Maybe there's a little bit of profit-taking. Maybe this is also the fact that they are still posting growth, but they're showing maybe a little bit of a downdraft or a cooling in momentum when it comes to overall room rates growth, as was pointing out by BI. But what's notable is this is a company that's really starting to rely on AI, particularly when it comes to customer service. They're investing in particular there to improve the customer experience, and that's what we're going to be digging into a little bit more now.
0: That was the Brian Chesky message, transforming customer service using AI. What about transforming customer service with conversational AI? That's the promise of Sierra. It's the latest venture from former Salesforce co-CEO Brett Taylor, of course, also the chair of OpenAI and former Google employee Clay Bevor. Sierra is an AI agent which mirrors the nuances of human communication, but it's also empowered to take action to solve customers' problems. Delighted to say that Sierra's co-founders, Brett and Clay, are here with us in San Francisco. So, Brett, let's start with you. Uh, Been wondering a little while what you've been up to. Uh, you raised some money in stealth for Sierra. You've come out of stealth, and you want to do something that's been talked about a bit in recent months, introduce an AI agent.
6: Yeah, we're really excited about this. Uh, you know, when you leave your job, especially jobs like we have, you want to go towards a big vision. And from Clay and our perspective, conversational AI, I think, is perhaps the most important consumer technology trend of a generation. Uh, when you look at it, the advent of the internet and how it impacted uh, companies' ability to interact with their customers digitally, the birth of the smartphone, we think conversational AI is on par with those. Uh, and candidly, I think every company is going to need their own a- AI agent. That's going to be the way you interact with your customers. And I think it will be as important as your mobile app, as important as your website in just a few years. Clay, you, you raised some money,
0: uh, well, two separate rounds. But essentially, uh, I want to know how you guys got together. Interesting careers you've both had so far. Whose idea was it? Uh, and why are you working together on this company?
7: Brett and I have actually known each other for almost 20 years. We met in our early days at Google where we started our careers and have kept in touch ever since. And Brett and I both saw this wave of technology change and we're so excited about the potential in large language models and recent advances in AI and got together just over a year ago, over lunch actually, and kind of hatched early plans there. And I think like with most things we do, the idea came from us both. And uh, we worked over uh, the past almost 11 months to really discover and refine it, including with a number of what we call design partners, early pilot customers, who've helped us shape the platform and the idea.
3: Clay, talk about that refining hallucinations are what are the key concern and maybe limitations in the here and the now of generative AI more broadly and chatbots in a generative AI form. What are you seeing, Clay, about improvements in that?
7: Well, first of all, I think what we built with Sierra and conversational AI goes far beyond what I think most people will have experienced with chatbots. I think if you polled Bloomberg readers and watchers, do they like chatbots that you use embedded on websites today, probably zero of 100 would say yes. But if you polled those same 100 people and asked, do you like talking with ChatGPT, maybe 100 would say yes. And so the technology underlying Sierra and our AI agents really fundamentally didn't exist much more than a year ago. And so we've built Sierra and the platform on this fundamentally new technology. As for hallucinations, it's a really important issue, and as you know, AI is fundamentally non-deterministic, and using a large language model on its own, you can't guarantee what it will output. So we've taken a multi-layered approach to security, starting with very strict security protocols around whenever our AI agents are taking action and using systems, those are done completely deterministically. We also imbue our agents with knowledge provided to us by our customers and have multiple layers of supervision and oversight, including advanced auditing and inspection tools for our customers to use.
3: It's interesting that, Brett, we just heard Clay reference ChatGPT and of course you are the chair of the board of OpenAI. I'm really interested in when you're building another generative AI company that might well also be seen as a competitor, how you think about that from an ethical perspective.
6: Uh, well, first, I, I really don't think OpenAI and Sierra are competitive. I think I think we'll look back at the Sierra, and it will be sort of like saying you're an internet company today. It doesn't make sense because the internet permeates every business and every decision we make. And I think AI will have a similar impact. And we exist at a sort of a different layer of the stack. We're, we're customers of OpenAI in addition to a number of other foundation models. And uh, obviously, at OpenAI, I operate in more of a governance role, not an operational role. And certainly, if there's ever an opportunity Uh, for conflict I'd simply recuse myself and I can say I'm uh, really grateful to be a part of OpenAI. Uh, I joined that board and a story that you covered extensively and I think the mission is more important than ever before and uh, I'm grateful to be a part of that mission. Clay one of the things I've, I've learned in my reporting of OpenAI is
0: that the cap table is complicated and important but actually access to compute and your strategic partners are are equally as important, if not more. What has Sierra done in its access to AI accelerators on on that end of the spectrum? But also, what are your relationships
7: with the hyperscalers and, and your talent base as well? Well, first of all, the technology approach that we use to building Sierra agents is what's called an autonomous AI agent architecture. And what we do is rather than relying on a single model, any action that the agent takes might rely on five or six different models for different tasks, reasoning, decision making, planning, generating responses, and more. And so we actually use a a constellation of models. We currently work with OpenAI. We work with Azure Cognitive Services um, and others on our cloud infrastructure and our model providers, we generally rely on them to prov- uh, provision and provide the underlying hardware that we scale through. So we're a step removed from it, but it's always on our mind, and we've taken multiple steps to ensure that we ha- can plan for capacity and use and so on.
0: Brett, if, if you don't mind, I'd like to linger on your CV a bit, because what's happened in the last 12 months is, is, is extraordinary. You have companies like yours coming out of stealth. Raising vast amounts of money, you you said that Clay said you'd put this together in 11 months. But I I just want to understand, like, how this process compares to your time at Salesforce, the earlier days at Google. In 11 months, how big has your team grown to? Is it just the two of you in a in a garage somewhere? You know, I think people don't really have a great sense of what building a startup that rapidly is like.
6: Uh, Well, I've gone from 80,000 employees to 30, uh, and it's been delightful. And actually, let me just contextualize it in sort of the story of Silicon Valley. If you look at the previous significant technology waves, uh, the growth of the internet in the late 90s, the growth of of the smartphone in the 2010s, those periods coincide with many startups that start then that become formidable companies. Uh, Our two predecessors, Salesforce and Google, were born in the birth of the web browser, Uh, companies like Uber and Lyft that you were just speaking about came to exist because of the birth of the smartphone. So in these moments where there's a significant new technology trend that means new consumer behaviors, new technology models, often new business models, uh, there's really an opportunity for startups to compete again. Um, There's a great Steve Jobs quote that it's more fun to be a pirate than it is to be in the Navy. Um, And there's these moments in Silicon Valley history where uh, you have an opportunity as a smaller company where your agility and your ability to have that unique market perspective is an advantage. Um, it doesn't mean that incumbents don't have advantages, but it's a fun time to be a startup right now And because no one knows what the future of this technology will bring, and we have an opportunity to define it.
3: Clay, there are other startups doing this. And I think of Forethought, I think of Ada, and I think of ultimately what holds back. What you're having to do is to connect with other enterprise systems. I've been talking to Kai-Fu Lee, for example, yesterday, who's saying agents, personal agents, sound like they're gonna be really easy to orchestrate, but they're not because there's gonna be pushback from incumbents. How much pushback have you felt? How much have enterprise systems and other big companies already playing in the enterprise enterprise space been willing to allow a company agent to navigate with them.
7: Well, first of all, we've had the privilege of working with many leading consumer brands on actually developing the first version of our platform. Brands like Weight Watchers, Sonos, SiriusXM, and Olokai. And we've worked hand-in-hand with them to develop our CR platform and the agent architecture to make sure that it's trustworthy, that it can integrate seamlessly and easily, and is easy to deploy with their systems, and that the experience it delivers for their customers is really delightful. And so you're right, in order to have these agents able to take action on behalf of your customers, there is some work to do to integrate with systems and your knowledge bases and so on. We're really proud of how easy we've made that. And in fact, a Sierra agent can be deployed in just a matter of weeks. Our colleague Katie Roof broke the story about your your fundraisers and the near
0: valuation of a billion dollars. Uh, what justifies those numbers? Um, you know, you, da- you kind of tease some of the customers that you-, you worked with in the development process, we mentioned Airbnb has an ambition to integrate agents, I suppose, into their customer service offering. Who are you talking to? You know, how quickly do you commercialize this, prep?
6: Well, number one, we're really focused on our customers. We're really focused on the largest consumer brands who I think would benefit the most from this conversational AI. I think they'll save the most in operating retailers. expenses. Uh, not just retailers, if you think of. Uh, we've partnered with media companies, all subscription services, uh, airlines, travel companies. We think there's in really broad consumer categories that can benefit from this. And as Clay said, the unique requirements of these larger enterprises, I think CIRA is uniquely able to handle. You talk about value You know, it's funny, you talk about the dot-com bubble, and I think a lot of people think of Pets.com and Yes. If you could go back in time and buy an index fund of all of those dot-com companies, you'd also get Amazon, you'd also get Google, you'd get eBay, you'd get PayPal, and you probably would make a ton. Um, I think as you're looking at investment right now, it's certainly frothy, it's certainly a bit of an AI bubble. However, I think the thesis that out of this AI wave will come many generational companies uniquely built on this technology is probably true. So I think it's probably both true that there's a lot of hype and that this technology wave is going to fundamentally change the way we interact with consumers and fundamentally change the market of the technology economy. Uh, And I think it's exciting. Um, So uh, I think we have a lot of work to do to justify the faith that our investors have in us. And But I could not be more optimistic about the future. Uh, Sierra co-founder and CEO
0: Brett Taylor and co-founder Clay Bevor, great conversation. That was, a, I guess, a Silicon
3: Valley classic
0: in the new era. Caroline.
3: Ain't it just. Meanwhile, coming up, we'll talk about, well, another classic in the Silicon Valley area, Y Combinator. It's placing its bets on perhaps some different areas at the moment. We're going to talk about it all with Dalton Caldwell, Managing Director over there at YC. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, Across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at grammarly.com. Grammarly, easier said, done. The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape. Looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, C-Trace, COA and more. Summit advisors include Citi and Schneider Electric. Visit BloombergLive.com sbs 2024 to learn more. on today's VC Spotlight. Why Combinator? It's got a whole new request for startups for you. The request, well it's a bit of a tradition at the firm with each one laying out some big ideas, some inspirations, some spaces basically that they want the entrepreneur to focus in on and where they want their investments to back. The new list includes 20 categories. We've got machine learning applied to robotics, we've got new defense technology, we've got climate tech. Let's bring in Y Combinator Partner and Investments Managing Director, Dalton Caldwell, for more on this. And the inspiration, let's take one, for example, robotics. Now, the limitations are real-world data. We've got to go out there and understand how robotics really interact with the real world. We've got a lot of online data. We don't have that much real-world data. But what do you want to be anticipated and built here? What are you looking to back?
8: Yeah, uh, thanks so much for having me. And to start off, um, the RFS, the Request for Startups, has a rich history at YC. And we put these out, honestly, uh, kind of for fun. We put these out to inspire people. To, to be aware of the kind of ideas we want to fund. So let's talk about robotics, which is the one you just asked me about. Um, sometimes you'll see founders trying to come up with an idea and they're not sure what investors want to fund. <laughs> and sometimes they're, they're insecure or they're worried that maybe YC doesn't want to fund a robotic startup. And so the goal of this RFS and all these RFSs is, is just to give a little bit of a window into our brains of the sorts of startups that we'd love to see apply, that we're excited to see people apply with, and um, you know the deep insights—that's that's the the founders' department about how exactly to implement it. But the the goal of putting out, say, again this robotics one is to is to signal to people that are curious if maybe they should apply to YC with a robotics idea. That yes, they definitely should.
0: Yeah, right. Dalton, does Y Combinator still require, is it still mandatory if you get into the summer or winter class to be in person in San Francisco? Yeah,
8: yeah, we sure do. It's an in-person program. Um, all of our meetings with the founders are in person. So yeah, that's right.
0: The reason I ask is that... I have a documentary coming soon called Cerebral Valley. Your friend and colleague Gary Tan is in it. And at the time we shot it, you guys had around 35% of that then class working in AI. And it looks at why there's a really high concentration of talent coming to San Francisco. What you're doing is kind of the opposite. You're the pool, you're saying, come, you know, we want specifically people focused in this area. But answer that question for me. Why is there such a high concentration of talent in these areas already in San Francisco like nowhere else? Well,
8: look, I think there's a rich history of of technology being in the Bay Area. Um, In fact, we've even put out a video that uh, myself and one of my colleagues, Michael, is in specifically about um, whether founders should consider moving to the Bay Area or not and what the pros and cons are. But um, to to quickly summarize it, there's network effects from all these things being here in the 50s and 60s, the history of computing, and those network effects still continue to pay off all these years later. Where the the folks that worked at a prior generation of companies tend to to stay around, just like um, the folks that were on the segment before me, you can see that they benefited tremendously from being in the Bay Area and continue to do so. Um, and they're it sounds like they're choosing to put their startup here too. So, you know, this isn't a new this isn't a new phenomena. I think this is but going on a long time.
3: Let's go back to the inspiration and in the areas that you want to th- see things built. And space is another one that you highlight. Mm-hmm. Maybe you would say but that's not dominated so much by the Bay Area. I think a Leo Labs, that's over in Europe, and there's also some other key space companies being built more broadly around the United States. But what do you want, where is the opportunity, do you think, to build oh, yeah. in space tech?
8: I think that's an excellent question. Um, the reason we put this RFS out was that I think founders sometimes feel that space ideas are too ambitious or that maybe, you know, they see the kind of companies that that are currently raising money. Um, you know, this is the naive algorithm a lot of founders do for what startup idea to work on is they go read articles or, you know, see TV segments on what raises the most money. And they're like, I'll do that, but with a tiny difference, a subtle difference. <laughs> and then I'll raise money. Um, and so we want to put out things like space to, to inspire people that, yes, we will definitely fund space companies. We've had a lot of success funding space companies, such as uh, Stoke Space and Relativity Space. And um, there's this Moore's Law type of effect happening on how easy uh, and cheap it is to get uh, objects into space. And the side effect of that uh, we think is going to be staggering, similar to Moore's Law affecting computing, uh, similar thing that we think is going to happen for space. And so again, we're just trying to signal to people, if you're considering doing a space startup, A, you know, seems like a good idea, and B, we would love to see you apply to YC with that idea.
0: Y Combinator Partner and Investments Managing Director Dalton Caldwell. Good to catch up. Thank you for your time. Sticking with space, actually, some news crossing the terminal this hour. Elon Musk's Starlink has won a license to operate in Israel and parts of the Gaza Strip after agreeing to a series of measures that prevent Hamas from getting access to its satellite internet services. I think this story is important and the use cases identified are, for example, in field hospitals and by Israeli government agencies. But we'll continue
7: to to track that story. All right, guys. So I finally tried Apple's Vision Pro. And, you know, I have to say that before this, I expected that Quest would be the better value for most people since it's really good and it's like seven times less expensive. Uh, but after using it, I don't just think that Quest is the better value. I think that Quest is the better product, period. Meta CEO
0: Mark Zuckerberg taking aim at the Vision Pro with Meta's Quest 3. Let's get right to Bloomberg's Mark Gurman. Wow, what a video. Interesting analysis from their side of the, the technological divide. What was said?
9: Yeah, you know, Zuckerberg went right at the Vision Pro. He talked about field of view. He talked about comfort. He talked about, uh, pass through quality. He talked about the resolution of the displays. Uh, he implied that the vision pro as we've discussed before is an over engineered product where they've put these extremely high resolution panels into the product, bringing up the price, but what are the use cases for that? And so I think he made a few salient points. I think he did something that he had to do. I think his review, uh, that he posted on Instagram is really going to drum up sales, uh, of the Meta Quest, I think this is going to help sell his product, but that's the positive. On the other side, I think a few years' time—remember, the Vision Pro is a first-generation product. In a few years' time, I think Apple is going to figure some stuff out. I think the price is probably going to come down a little bit. The comfort is going to improve. The use cases are going to improve. The App Store will finally include some interesting apps. And at that point, people will be going back and playing the Zuckerberg video, and it won't look so great. So I think for his sake he should have said he thinks it'll improve in the our future
3: we thank you this is Bloomberg Technology.
4: what could you do if your data was working
3: for you and not against you with bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems you get easy access to the details you want optimized for higher level analysis and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.